0: Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Reticent. Reticent podcast. A few weeks ago, I was about to publish Zero Trust Information that basically made the argument that You would think would not be a a controversial opinion, but that there might be some upside to social networks, you know, in that you can surface information that might not be surfaced otherwise. And I actually told you before I published it that, oh, this is going to be a controversial one. Mm. And you were like, why? (laughs) Like, what's going to be controversial? And I ended up being right. It was controversial. At one point I had... Three journalists from a particular newspaper attacking me at the same time on Twitter <laughs> for literally not attacking. I, would, I didn't say anything about anyhow, uh, <laughs> neither here nor there. And so, in that case, sort of, I saw it coming, right? Mm. So fast forward to this week, I wrote a couple of pieces about sort of this moment. I mean, it's almost hard to know how to characterize what's going on. We had to delay the start of our podcast, so the helicopters that yeah. were over your house could move on. Uh, uh, Just to be to fair, sort of I
1: was out there protesting with COVID and everything. I felt like it was necessary to go out with suitable precautions. But yeah, I was out there a couple of hours earlier. Yeah, and I felt that I needed to write this piece. And this first one was about...
0: Growing up in Madison, the sort of idyllic sort of city, ranked the number one city to live in America. Remember when that came out when I was in high school? You know, everyone was very excited about it. And it turned out it's not necessarily a great place to live if you are African American and to understand the history of that and things like redlining. And you can still see the scars from that today. And you can see it very clearly in a place like Minneapolis, where, you know, with the murder of officially a homicide right now of George Floyd. And, you know, the racial covenants that were in place in Minneapolis that still define sort of the makeup of neighborhoods today and pulling that forward. The tech angle here, and this isn't a cliche. Let's see if we can work in tech here. To me, this is such a tech story because of things like phone cameras and social networks that show what was likely almost certainly we know was happening for many, many, many years but was just swept under the blanket, swept under Mm. the rug and no one knew about. And that is something that is important and meaningful. And it's important and meaningful for the world broadly. It's important and meaningful for people like you and I to understand, you know, our position in the world. And I think it's something that's important. And, I appreciated the feedback I got for that article. Generally, you know, people liked it. And sort of with that in mind, (laughs) we can get into the the piece of the article in a bit. But with that in mind, I wrote an article the next day sort of defending Facebook's decision to not take down President Trump's tweets. And in this case, unlike Zero Trust Information, I just sort of posted it and didn't think about it. And whoo. I was pretty surprised at the extremity of the feedback. I don't feel bad for publishing it, but it was one I didn't quite see coming in the way I did with the Zero Trust information. And the degree to which this has become a almost tribal and political point is – Pretty incredible. And that's why I warned you. Well, are you sure you want a podcast about this? Because <laughs> we already had our net neutrality podcast. Are you sure you want to sort of do another one? But you wanted to dive right in. So here we are. Here we are. I mean, that was a long introduction, but uh,
1: that's why I'm reticent. That's why I'm reticent. Uh, and it makes sense. Let me just state it clearly up front. I have been a Facebook critic over the years for a number of things, but I am not going to criticize them for leaving up the tweet the comments of the president of the United States of America, like starting down the path where a private company that is like a route from a elected official to the people of the country, that a private company should be standing between those two entities and deciding what's okay for that to get passed along and what's not okay for that to get passed along it boggles my mind that people think that we should be going back into the gatekeeper era on something so fundamental to a democracy. It just boggles my mind. So apparently I'm two for two now on not being able to pick up on when these things are going to go incendiary because like I didn't pick up the one on zero trust information that you found yourself in a fight with journalists on, even though you did. But this one I wouldn't have picked up on either. It's like I'm down to give Facebook crap when I feel like they deserve it, but. I don't feel like they deserved it this time. And I certainly don't feel like you deserved it for stating in such a well-reasoned, logical way why that was the right call.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm fine, to be clear. So we kind of fast forward to the end here. The conclusion is right up front. But I think it might be useful to sort of back up because this has been a, I think, developing over a few weeks. And it does predate sort of the current moment with the protest and the video of George Floyd. And so even before that happened, this started with Twitter attaching a fact check label or, you know, get the facts label to two Trump tweets. And these tweets were about Trump, you know, saying that mail-in balloting would be susceptible to huge amounts of fraud. Obviously, the question about mail-in balloting is top of mind because of the coronavirus Hmm. and they attached the labels. Trump did not like that, to, to say the least. Maybe that's a good place to start.
1: How did you feel about Twitter attaching those labels to Trump's tweets? That's a good question. Okay, so we're certainly not at the point of taking posts down. But this is such a slippery slope. It's so difficult. I mean, on one hand, good on them for making a decision. So they made a decision and like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to attach a label. But like, how does this play out at scale? Like, are we going to go through every elected official and decide... When they need fact checking and when they're not. And where are we going to get a common set of facts from? I think the Twitter get the facts post initially that was referenced underneath that Trump tweet, correct me if I'm wrong, but pointed at something that had a factual inaccuracy in it. And that's yep, like, that's right. It did. Like, are they planning on building out a Wikipedia style organization with an accepted set of facts that everybody agrees on? Like, it just. I get it in the instance, but like, I'm trying to think about how this works on mass, but I don't know how it works at scale. I like how you're struggling right now because that is the answer, right?
0: The answer to this is the level of complexity involved here is astronomical and not like technical complexity. Like what is truth complexity? Right. Like you're, you're not just getting into like engineering questions. You're getting into like the deepest philosophical questions of life. And that seems awfully. I'm not sure what the word is, but that Twitter is going to put themselves in that position. But that's the point is obviously Twitter is not going to put themselves in that position. In fact, Jack Dorsey came out in response to Mark Zuckerberg's interview on Fox, which we can perhaps get to, saying oh, we are not being an arbiter of truth. it's like, well, okay, where's the line between we're going to put a fact check label on the president's tweets and we are not being the arbiter of truth? Like, there's a logical inconsistency in sort of those two statements there. And you could see that right away, right? Because immediately Trump's like, my free speech is being violated. And like, say what you will about Twitter's attaching a label. If anything, it was a more speech response, right? Because they weren't taking, in this case, you just kind of made that point. They weren't taking them down. They were adding on more speech to sort of counter what Trump said. So it was not a violation of free speech. But did Twitter fact check Trump's tweet saying it was a violation of free speech? No, of course they didn't. Right. Because this isn't about actually fact checking every tweet or else there would be a lot more labels on there. Why is it that there's only two labels? And then, of course, you know, people come back and say, oh, what about foreign leaders? So Twitter goes back and they put a label on this, the spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry on a tweet from March 12th where he's alleging that the virus came from the U.S. and that was planted in Wuhan by the U.S. military. And they attached a get the facts" label to a tweet from March 12th, which no one is seeing anymore, right? People don't usually go back to tweets that are three months ago And why would they add that? Well, they added it because they felt compelled to attach a tweet to someone from China so they could appear even handed, I guess. But also the way you would encounter this tweet, by the way, is probably because someone embedded it in an article. Oh, look at this tweet back from March about this guy. Like there was a wall street journal article last week about the sort of, they call them wolf warrior diplomats in China. And they had this tweet in there. Guess what? The embed did not have the link because the capability of this link does not include actually moving with the embed, so the link only appears on Twitter. You know, you actually start pressing on the specifics and you start to ask what's the
1: point? The worst thing I feel like you can do in these situations is fly by the seat of your pants too, right? Like these are complicated things. And so, for example, understanding that this is going to be just as important when you get a controversial tweet and like a lot of the ways that people will come across it, given that Twitter doesn't have across the globe, the biggest audience compared to something like Facebook is going to be through embeds, but they haven't thought through enough to like, oh, well, when it gets embedded, we should also make sure this functionality is there. Kind of smacks of like, I don't know, guys, like it really does feel like you're just shooting from the hip a little bit here, doesn't it?
0: And that's a super important thing because I think there's levels going on here, right? On the surface, Twitter just wants to state the truth, right? It's a pursuit of truth. They want to get the facts out there. How can you argue with that? Right, exactly. And if you object to that, oh, so you support misinformation, huh? Yeah, fake news. Like it sounds we're mocking that, but believe me, that is the feedback you will get If you think that Twitter made a poor choice there, you will be accused of supporting fascism. You will be accused of being a Trumpist. You will be accused of a whole host of things because you want to push on the surface level suggestion here that this is about get the facts. When if it was about to get the facts, then why isn't it everywhere? It certainly feels like and seems like this is more about doing something to have done something, right? It's making a statement. It's Twitter cognizant and probably a bit guilty, feeling guilty about the fact that Trump uses their platform in the way that he does. And knowing that Twitter is just (laughs) for four years, for five years, just in the spotlight for all the reasons they don't want to be in the spotlight. And people have been pressing on Twitter for years. Edit Trump, delete his account do these tweets, and they've gotten so much pressure, so much pressure, so much pressure, and fine, we're going to do something. And they did something, and now it worked, right? All the pressure is now on Facebook. There's been a lot less talk about Twitter should do something because they did something. But in the long run, is that a
1: good basis for making these sorts of decisions is to do something? I'll grant them this. Like, in terms of the do something, adding more speech, which they have the right to do, Is like probably one of the less harmful things they could have done. And I don't know what it's like to be sitting in the seat of Jack Dorsey just getting all that pressure. It must have been horrible. There's also a responsibility that you have here around making sure these things are scalable and like, okay, so what we're just going to have fact checkers for representatives of the United States government and the Chinese government. This doesn't feel like a fully thought through strategy at all. Well, here's the question. If there is not a get the facts label attached, does that mean that it's true? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, that would certainly imply for 99.99 repeater percent of all the tweets, like it must be that everything I read on there is correct, isn't it? Because there's not one of those labels. That's right. So I think you just drew a good distinction. If you are going
0: to do something, a get the facts, you know, particularly around an elected official for all the things that you sort of suggested at the beginning, right? Like the reason we have a democracy is not because democracies are super efficient and get things done, you know, very well. Make the trains run on time. The make the trains run on time is usually about fascists, right? Having the government be in charge, or you're authoritarian, whether it be communists or fascists or whatever it might be, a sort of authoritarian government. Democracies are very bad at that. Like we've talked about this in the context of the virus, right? Everything about the U.S. Yes, first and foremost, there was a inept response to the virus. There was complete lack of leadership, you know, and we are bearing the burden of there being just a absence Mm -hmm. of leadership and how that filters down into the agencies like the CDC has fallen apart, et cetera, et cetera. So that's absolutely the case. But the U.S. – and you see this also in Western Europe, which struggled tremendously with this. Like this wasn't just a U.S. struggle, right? People in the U.S. tend to be so insular and so so solipsistic. All they see is the U.S. Well, Europe – there's a lot of countries in Europe that actually did worse than the U.S. and are still doing worse and not just Sweden, like ones that did lockdowns. But it turns out that open societies where it's not really in their nature to – have an authoritarian, hardcore sort of lockdown control, centralized quarantine like Vietnam. Vietnam probably handled the virus better than anyone because every single person and every single person they were in contact with got put in a centralized quarantine, whether you wanted to or not. Right. Like that's not happening in the West. And that's just the nature of our system is to not work that way. And that was a very difficult aspect of the pandemic But along those lines, the reason we have that system is because it's a protection. Again, we don't want the others away. We don't want the authoritarianism. We don't want the tyranny. And so much of the U.S. being inefficient, particularly as far as government is concerned, is because you have the states versus the government and you have the Senate versus the House versus the president. It's designed to not have a central locus of power because the fear was tyranny. The goal was not efficiency. And people forget about this, right? It was meant to be inefficient. It was meant to have gridlock. That was the point of the design. We choose that approach Out of fear of tyranny, not a goal of efficiency. In that case, the elections are there as a check. Right. And so substituting that, oh, the government is insufficiently authoritarian. There's too much free speech. So Jack Dorsey should be
1: the authoritarian is kind of missing the point. Oh, it's totally missing the point. I mean – I come at this from a slightly different perspective, living inside the United States as a foreigner. And I speak to many friends who are overseas and, and like the texts and the calls are like, Oh my God, are you okay? Like, how do you live in there? It looks like the society's destroying itself and read news from overseas, like whether it's Australian news or also uh, Bill Bishop's excellent. Sinocism newsletter, getting the perspective from China and almost like the smugness that's coming out of there in terms of like, oh, look at America, not handle this at all well. Like, this is fantastic. But I have come to the strangest conclusion around this. And that is, this is the system over here working exactly as it's meant to. And let me be very clear about that. I'm not talking about the brutal murder or homicide of George Floyd, I am referring to the fact that there is a problem and it is being resolved and it is being resolved everywhere and people are taking up the cause of getting it fixed. That Winston Churchill quote about how Americans do the right thing after they've exhausted all the other options – There is something to that, but like, I don't think that folks inside the United States are inherently better or worse than anyone else. If there's such a thing as American exceptionalism, it is baked into this system and it is baked in, in the fact that, yeah, like, People over here make mistakes just like everywhere else, but the system corrects itself. And these protests, like these violent protests, that is a correction mechanism because everything up until this point has not corrected it. And I, for one, this is good. This is the system working. This is not the system breaking down. This is change happening in exactly the way that it should be. And it's interesting to use China as a foil a little bit in this and like the way that they're proceeding with Hong Kong and they're just squashing it. They couldn't resolve it. So they're just going to force it down. And again, there's a sense of smug superiority about this. Like, Okay, guys, you're locking up how many Uyghurs in Xinjiang and like nobody knows about it. Yes, you've got the efficiency, Ben, you just referred to, but like, do you really feel like that's the right outcome? And it doesn't feel like this is the thing that's going to bring people together right now, but I feel like there's something about you need a breakdown to proceed a breakthrough. And that is what's happening. And I, I for one, feel positive that we're actually going to get to the other side of this and it's going to be better as a result. I wasn't quite sure where you were going with that, but I actually agree with where you ended up. And I think that was a point I tried to make
0: in my piece this week about my history, described it briefly at the top, but you know, I grew up in Madison in this beautiful city and I had no idea like I knew that there was one neighborhood or one area people said were a little sketchy and me just being a kid never even thought twice about it, right? Well, it turned out actually that was an area that was previously redlined was kind of on a marsh, was just a crappy place to live and then they tore down a bunch of like low income housing and shoved it all into one spot (laughs) and it turns out that ended up not being a great place to live. The kids there have uh, poor test scores The poverty is very high. And it is predominantly African-American. And I was living in a place that prided itself on how liberal it was and how progressive it was. And and meanwhile, it was just shoving stuff under the carpet. And this is sort of endemic in the Midwest in particular. The Midwest has a lot of segregation in part because when the African-Americans came up from the South, there was a lot of zoning that was put in place. So like the Midwest was actually early. The redlining thing came from a federal agency in the 1930s. But Minneapolis, for example, and I discussed this in the article. They were putting covenants into deeds that said this property cannot be acquired by or owned by an African American. They started like 1910. So, in the early 1900s. So, this was going on well before redlining even happened. It was sort of like baked in. And so, the implication of that is I grew up in, and we have these cities and these areas in America of this sort of rampant segregation. And this gives a certain I want to say freedom, but it's not freedom, but a certain privilege, I guess, is the word for people like me growing up to not even know about these areas, not even to know what was going on. And meanwhile, if you were to actually go in and look at the crime statistics, oh, isn't it interesting that 90 percent of the city is white, but 50 percent of the people that are arrested are African-American. Like, that doesn't seem right. How is that happening? I don't see any crime around me. Well, yeah, I don't see any crime around me because I'm living in an extremely segregated city that has been that way for decades and is leading to poor outcomes because i I have all the opportunities in the world. Yeah, I grew up quite poor, but I had great parks. I had great facilities around me. I had lots of opportunities. I could play Little League. I wasn't living in a place with was a food desert that had no good stores, that had no great parks, that had no sort of basic opportunities that would take for granted. And the brutal thing, again, is I had no idea. One of the things about that is it feels right now so heavy, like, oh, I can't believe that this happened. But the sense of shock the sense of horror that I can't believe this happened to George Floyd, that a police officer would have his yeah. knee on his neck for 10 minutes. That sense of horror is a horror that is arriving decades late, right? That's why it feels, I think, for people like me, people like us that didn't live in this world, that were segregated right. from this world. It feels like, oh, the world's getting so much worse. But if you were living this reality, the world's not getting
1: worse. This is the way the world's always been. Yeah, it's bringing light to the situation. And we were in a bubble. Obviously, like, I am not a fan of violence, but if it takes this to. Burst my bubble to burst our bubble to make this better. This is the system working the way you described it and the Madison and like your, your understanding of it. I really appreciated that. And maybe this is us because we haven't lived this and it, it's going to be a little bit more intellectual as opposed to a lived experience. But I had a similar realization very recently as a result of all of this, where I caught myself saying, you know, it's terrible that these black men died. That, like the looting needs to stop. And then I thought back to one of the episodes that we had earlier about principal stacks. And I realized that inherent in my statement, there was a principal stack. And I realized that when I flipped the statement around and it's like, it's terrible that this looting is happening, but black people need to stop being murdered. And when I contrasted those two statements, I realized that I was just living in this bubble and being part of the problem and it needs to stop. Like we're so anchored on, like you said, going back to China, the efficiency and law and order, what system puts property above the right of an innocent human being to live and is being murdered at the hands effectively of the state? Like my priorities were all screwed up. I love that you invoked the principal stack there because I think that that solves
0: so many of the intractable feelings here, right? Which is, of course, the looting is bad, <laughs> of course the violence is bad, and and horribly enough, it's happening to these small businesses that are already being devastated by the virus, and now like they're like it's awful, it's terrible, and you can say that it's terrible. You can also say that an African American being murdered is terrible, and to your point. The way you resolve saying both are bad is you think very carefully about the principal stack. I love it. It's such a great way to think about it. And I think your point's right. Which one is actually worse to you? Because it's okay to say both are bad, but it's on you to sort of think through which one is worse. It's such a great – basically restate what you said. It's such a great way to sort of – because you see this online, right, where you just – people are driven to extremes. And it's like, oh, well, you, you know, the violence, blah, 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 blah. And then on the other side, it's like, oh – it's almost like a dismissal that violence is a bad thing right but the way to resolve this is we can all say both are bad and let's all think super carefully about the order in which we have them
1: yeah and and, i mean there are things that i don't want to conflate here like the looting that's happening in some of these cities is disproportionately affecting the people that are also being affected by the police brutality like i am not in support of that i am not in support of violence but if it wasn't for what's going on, would we have all popped out of our bubble like this? I don't know. And if that's the way in which we need to like stack the priorities, then that's the way we need to stack the priorities. And this is not the system broken. This is the system working. And an important part of that, of this
0: idea that this was... Hidden for so long. Again, this is where the tech part actually does really matter. This idea, the implicit a core part of this system being in place for many, many years of, of segregation was the media. The media absolutely mm. played a part in it because the media didn't cover that part of town. To the extent they covered it, they covered police blotters. Right? No one who worked for the media lived there or actually understood what life was like there, right? How often would something like this happen where George Floyd was, because of video, We believe was murdered, but without video would be, oh, he had a heart condition. He had uh, intoxicants in his system. There would be a police report filed saying, oh, he unfortunately died while undergoing arrest for using a counterfeit bill or whatever the issue was. And that would be the end of it. No one would question it. Yeah, No one would ever question it. And maybe they would merit a line or two in the newspaper. Probably not. Now, the person that was standing there who saw it happen, she would know. She would know what happened. And she would go back and she would tell, as we've seen people talk about, she would tell her brothers or, you know, her father, you know, be careful out there because it happened again. The police basically murdered another whack man. Yeah. But that's where the story would be. But this time, this time was different. It was different because she had a phone. She had a camera and she had a Facebook account. And this is not at all saying that because of that, everything about phones is good. Everything about Facebook is good, not in the slightest. The point that we've made again and again and again is that technology is an amoral force. What we choose to do with it, what happens to it, like that's where the good and the bad come in. But one of the sort of amoral effects is the breakdown of gatekeepers. And this is very bad for the newspaper business model because they don't have a monopoly on publishing. It's very good for someone like me because I can start a site and live in Taiwan and people can pay me directly, but it has even more profound effects than that. The system cannot effectively mute that woman that was standing there watching this because she can go direct. She can go direct to the entire world. That is a good thing. And that's what's missing about the talk about Facebook, right? Right. I think we have certainly been on all sides of the Facebook question, but I would say just sort of broadly, and it is striking that in the media, in sort of the folks that were the gatekeepers that seem to so despise Facebook so much, and it's hard to unpack All the motivations there, because there is some aspect where Facebook broke their hold on information dispersal, which is both bad from a societal role perspective and it's bad from a financial perspective. And it's really easy to latch on to all the bad things because the implication of if anyone can publish, then anyone can publish, right? (laughs) Including all the bad stuff, right? Right. But with that bad stuff comes good stuff. And I talked about in the context of Twitter. And this is an even better example. How can you dispute this is a good thing? Like, how can you dispute that that woman being able to post this video, no one thinks this is going to change things overnight. But to inch us at least
1: in the better direction is a great thing. I feel like the point earlier around this is where it's helpful to have a foil is actually it rises itself up again because there are... I don't know how many Uyghur Muslims being imprisoned and because there's one giant mute button in China, it's really hard for us to find out about it. And it spreads in the West because there's no mute button, but inside a place where the mute button is pressed with abundance, inside a place where like we need to decide what gets fact-checked, what's acceptable to be said and what's acceptable not to be said. Like There are a whole bunch of people that are having incredibly horrible things done to them and nobody knows about it. And nothing gets done about it. Yeah. And I think that gets to some of my frustration
0: about this Facebook conversation is we can have a debate. I mean, maybe not you and I, because we're on the same side, but we can have a debate about whether Facebook should do something about Trump's posts. But it's the almost dismissal of the possibility that it might be the right choice to not do something that is so striking. It's like there's a certain point of view that obviously Facebook should do something. And if you think that even countenance the possibility that they should not, then you're a fascist. It's like, wait, who's the who's the fascist yeah, here?
1: Right. <laughs> like, right. like who's, who's the one that, right. that is... <laughs> That is literally the definition of a fascist. Like you're you're going to be the one to decide what's okay to say and what's not okay to say. And sorry, who appointed you to that role? It's like the the objection to Zuckerberg is not that he is too much power, it's that he's not using the power in the way I want him to use it. Again, I've had my fair share of criticisms and I understand if you want to resign because Facebook's been reckless in its use of sharing data and compromising people's privacy by giving that data away in order to get third-party application developers or they get research on how to reduce conflict and, and like inflammatory stuff on the platform and they just shelve it. You want to resign because of that? I get it like 100%. But you're going to resign on the basis that Mark Zuckerberg is Going to not exercise his ability to decide what are acceptable statements that come out of the president of the United States' mouth. Like that just blows my mind. And the thing is, like the US having a racist president is not a new thing.
0: I hate to break it to you, but number one, the first 13 all owned slaves. (laughs) So there's a bit of a wake up call. Woodrow Wilson was extremely racist. Like that was the 20th century, World War I era. Then you had. Lyndon B. Johnson, notorious racist, Nixon, Reagan. oh like There's recordings, there's tapes of them using, uh, how should we put it, extremely problematic language. And this is not that long ago. We only found out about it relatively recently because these tapes were released and it was you, sort of a big story. But on one hand, it's all like Trump's doing us all a favor,
1: right? I don't think there's any Trump tapes. <laughs> and if there are, I don't think there's gonna be anything new on them. Right, like I wanna be able to stare into the eyes of darkness. Like, I want to know the reasons why if you disagree with this, why you need to get out there and you need to vote come November. Like the right answer isn't to like, oh, this is just a little bit too much. Like we're going to No like turn it up like this is what we need to fix this is what is in office like the solution to this isn't to suppress it the solution is to leave it up there and let people and that's the fundamental thing like the fundamental thing about a liberal democracy is people can handle the truth and make intelligent decisions like it's not nanny state china where ah uh... and like that's the distinction in china the belief is ah oh, if you give people all this stuff they're just going to tear each other apart they can't handle it inside the united states it's like We give people the truth and we let the people decide and maybe they'll get it wrong, but the system will correct and eventually we'll get to the right place. And like, that is not a liberal democratic principle suppressing the speech of the president of the United States of America. It's crazy that I have to say that. It wasn't that long ago
0: when I went on a similar sort of rant. And on this podcast, we use rant in the beloved sense, <laughs> where you, 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 I think you made some comment about me basically seeing the Star-Spangled Banner. But you are now, I believe, an honorary American with that one. Uh,
1: well, I'll, I'll take it.
0: <laughs> but no, I, I mean, it's funny because there was a sense of sheepishness, I think, that one would feel. Not that long ago, if one made sort of the statements that you just did, we need more speech and more liberty, more freedom. And because there's a certain cynicism, I think on Twitter in particular, that is, you know, oh, you're so privileged and it's so great for you to say, blah, blah, blah. And, you you know, this is violence, like violence is violence. Right. And again, I feel almost radicalized this week because the reason why there is hopefully going to be justice for George Floyd is because of more speech Yes, and this drive to suppress. That's why we're in the state we're in, because news and the reality of the African-American experience in so many cities and places was suppressed. So the answer, as far as I can see, is not to switch the target of suppression. It's to get rid of the suppression to use that sentence that I used, which I thought was so compelling as far as a visual reference from Kareem Abdul Jabbar, you know, that. The African-Americans have been choking on dust, on the dust of racism, and you don't see it until the white comes on. Like, oh, my word, this room is so dusty. How can you even breathe? That light is more speech. And I'm rejecting the cynicism with which people mock that sort of statement because this is a perfect example of where more speech is to the benefit of those that are not in the system. It is to the benefit of those under the boot of the state. More speech
1: doesn't benefit the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers want to control all the speech. Again, I'm going to keep coming back to it. And perhaps this is like how a foreigner wraps their head around why this is right. But like the other story this week was like China pushing through these laws on Hong Kong around sedition and terrorism and basically what's acceptable to state and what's acceptable not to state. And the protests around Tiananmen Square that have been a regular thing in Hong Kong, that's going to stop And it's just the contrast between the two approaches – and which side I want to be on? And again, granted, this system doesn't get it right. And there are definitely, like with everything we talk about on this program, the advantages and disadvantages. In a world of pandemic, maybe it doesn't handle it quite so well. But when it comes to we're going to shine a light and let people talk and get to the root of these problems. And sure, it's going to be ugly and messy. But we stand a chance of getting there. Versus, no, 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 that's not an okay topic to talk about. And if you want to talk about it, we're going to cut you off to jail. I don't want to live in that world. Yeah. It's this very weird sort of mindset where
0: it, this is what I pushed you on for a long time, right? It's like if someone ends up making the laws that usually ends up with the executive branch of the federal government, which means Donald Trump. And it's weird, like, no, we're going to have control over speech, but it's not going to be the current president. It's going to be someone that aligns with our views, right. even though we couldn't get someone with our views elected president, and it's not thought through. I lived in that. That's Rupert Murdoch. You don't want that. What you did so brilliantly by bringing up the principle stack is you saw the sort of paradox of how can you both be against violence and against black people being murdered, right? It's like, well, it's actually not that difficult. You just got to make sure your priority stack is in order. And once you realize that, what you talked about flipping the phrase was so profound, and I think really, really captures, it's not a paradox at all, right? And there's another paradox that I... Encounter, I think maybe you and I have talked this offline. I'm thinking of another friend that is not American where Mm. this paradox has come up. And it's this idea of how can America claim to be about freedom and liberty and all these sorts of things? And meanwhile, your African American population is way overrepresented in the prison system, the poverty levels, the household income. Like, why is there huge disparities? How can you say that? Like, where's the freedom? Where's the liberty? And There's something that all presidents say. I think Obama was certainly fond of saying this, and maybe that's sort of freshest in memory about those ideas of freedom and principle. There's an aspirational aspect to them. But what makes them more than just an aspiration is that they are their means of their own achievement, if that makes sense. You get more freedom by having more freedom. You get more liberty by having more liberty and, and you get sort of a feedback loop. Again, this is such a good example. A reason to be optimistic about all that's going on is that the U.S. is actually going to start realizing its ideals for African-Americans in particular yeah. in a better way than it has for a very, very long time. And the reason that those ideals are going to be better achieved is because there was light brought to it. There was more speech. There was more freedom of expression. And that freedom of expression was amplified via technology. And so it could be spread to the whole world. It's an example of where is America perfect? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> like in, but one, perfection is nowhere. Again, that's not to say that that's not an excuse. That's just sort of the reality of the human condition. But two, the way you solve the paradox of America is by almost weaning into it, right? The way you get more liberty is by granting more liberty, is by finding means for more liberty. And the ability to anyone to publish was a dramatic explosion yeah. in free expression, was a dramatic explosion in the First Amendment. The First Amendment suddenly became real to every single person in a way it wasn't previously. Totally. And that is leading to good outcomes. And it looks horrible, right? It was like, oh, America, you looking from the outside, America is getting worse and worse. It's like, well, if this was happening all along, is it? fair to say it's getting worse and worse when all you're seeing is something that was there all along. And, and like, you're like, oh, look, well, and you see this with the pushback on social media. It's like, oh, it's better in a world of gatekeepers. I hear this a lot, right? Because I always talk about this gatekeeper thing. You're like, oh, it was better when people are so focused on misinformation. It was better in a world where there were editors that decided what went in the paper. And it's like, was it better for George Floyd 50 years ago, whose story was never published? Was it better for
1: him? Like all these things that we've been talking about 100%. I totally agree with you. It's not that things are getting worse. It's we're realizing how bad things are. And that is the first step in fixing them. Absolutely. And, and that's why, you know, I
0: feel almost. Like, and this is why I then came back on Wednesday after writing about this on Tuesday and be like, yeah, Facebook should definitely not be right. editing these posts, right? I mean, there's all the practical considerations. It's bad for business. <laughs> you know, it's just The most sort of banal reason. It's sort of like the internet drives things to the extremes, right? It drives like two huge platforms on one side and individual entities on the other. And to be sort of that person in the middle, this goes back to one of our earliest episodes, The Jungle, right? You have all the growth on the floor and you have the huge trees and kind of nothing in the middle. That's how the internet works. But that applies, I think, to the internet's role in society. China is pushing it to one extreme, which is the internet has become a tool for totalitarian control. And that is one way we can go Another way we can go is where the internet is a tool to enable the proverbial thousand flowers to bloom. And guess what? A lot of them are going to be rotten. That's inherent in it. There's going to be a lot of misinformation. This is not to excuse misinformation. It's not to say it's not a problem. But we're not being honest in our discussions about misinformation if we're not also acknowledging the very real, extremely powerful world and society changing upsides that are also part of that. Yeah. And you can argue, by the way, you can say the downsides are also world changing and are so great that I oppose it. That's fine. That's fine. I'm not going to demand that everyone listening to this podcast agree with me, but to not even acknowledge the upsides is, I think, a real problem and a real mistake. And that's what's been distressing. I don't mind people disagreeing with me. People disagree with me all the time. It's distressing the people that come back, like not even accepting the possibility that Facebook might have made the right decision here.
1: Yeah. I don't want these things to happen. I don't want George Floyd to be murdered. I don't want women to be systematically sexually assaulted in the workplace. I don't want the president to be a racist. But I sure as hell do want to know when these things happen. And anything that stops us from finding out about that is inherently not a good thing. The other point of view that we should
0: raise, and we kind of mentioned in passing, is I think the really powerful critique of Facebook is that it's too big right? Like, so we can agree that one person should not be deciding what the president says or anyone says. Like, that's a great thing. But then the solution to that is not to say that person should decide what I think is right, (laughs) right? It's like, no, maybe we shouldn't have a situation where one person has so much power. And this has been a pushback. It's interesting. We've talked about this a lot. We've always both been very critical of Facebook's ownership structure, its share structure, the fact that Zuckerberg is not accountable to anyone. We've been two peas in a pod on that one. I think where we differed was, I was sort of heartened by the fact that Facebook had sort of a profit motive to not interfere on the other side and it kind of got a little fuzzy there for a while and it looked like well actually James's concern might have been right and it kind of feels like Facebook for whatever reasons has snapped back I'm glad that Facebook is taking a default position of not exercising power, but the underlying fact that one company
1: and one person has so much power, that's the critique. Then he just needs to wake up one morning on the wrong side of the bed and it all changes. Like literally which side of bed Mark Zuckerberg gets out of, like, that's not something I want to rest on, you know? Yeah. I mean, just to go back on our, you know, little history lesson about the U S, right? The point of having all
0: those distributed power centers was to make sure there wasn't any one person that could have that level of authority. And so we at the beginning of the podcast said, you know, in that system in elections as a check, we don't want to substitute in an authoritarian, but there is a next step, which is no one should have that level of authority. And again, there's a long step between how do we actually solve that problem? But in the meantime, we don't solve the problem by demanding that that person is... Like, I think we should be grateful yeah. to an ex- that that power exists and it is being explicitly not leveraged. And I mentioned this yesterday. I if this is what made people mad, is that there's a lot of labeling of Zuckerberg as being craven and being cowardly. And I have the opposite reaction. Like you see it with Twitter. and You see like Facebook employees want to step out, uh, you're wanting to quit and oh, so much criticism. Like I think this position feels like the more difficult position. And I'm grateful he's taking it. Again, I wish he didn't have so much power and we need to figure that out. But as long as he does, I'm pretty
1: grateful he's not exercising it. Yes, I'm with you. And again, as I said at the start, this is spoken as someone who has been a Facebook critic and a Zuckerberg critic for a long time. This feels like a reasoned and even wise decision and difficult decision to make in the face of all this pressure, because he cares deeply about that company. He doesn't want to lose engineers. Like it's his baby. The thought of it being torn up over this and the amount of pressure that must be difficult to withstand. And that's just inside, not talking about outside. I am very grateful that he's taken this position and I hope he holds on it. Well, I mean, we got to end it on there with James singing the praises of Mark Zuckerberg. There we go. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Very good. Well, it went from reticent to basically seeing the Star-Spangled Banner. So um, that was
1: quite a ride. <laughs> Getting the Australian to sing the Star-Spangled Banner, no less. But yes, that's what just happened, I guess. You can praise America's aspirations
0: without saying America is everything figured out and that everything's great. By praising the aspirations, you are criticizing the reality. That's a healthy place to be.
1: Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, we made, it. We made yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. <laughs>
0: Sounds good. Well, hopefully we can have a less controversial topic the next time Maybe. we talk. The way the, going, well, yeah. the way the world's <laughs> going, the going,
1: doesn't look promising. Uh, in the meantime, continue to take care. Uh, thank you for the chat and talk soon. Talk to you later.